Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, everyone. My name is Devin. I'm the lead pastor here at Brian. I'm glad that you are here today. I do have to say that it has been busy around the old McDonald household recently. You see, about 10 days ago, we got this little kitten. It does what kittens do. It's, you know, it knows where it's supposed to go, where it's not supposed to go, and so forth. They're pretty kind of low maintenance. But then about four days ago, we added a new puppy into the mix, eight weeks old. <laughs> you see, we're a dog family. We've always had dogs. And the little dog that we brought with us from Canada here to help the kids transition and just familiarity, this beautiful little family dog. She's only a year and a half old. She just died like two months ago, unexpectedly. Thanks for bringing that up. I was actually <laughs> starting to get over it. But <clears throat> So people joke. They say, oh my goodness, you got a cat, you got a dog. What's next? You're going to get a horse? And no, we're not going to get a horse because I admire horses. I know that they're smart and they're intelligent and they're beautiful, but I have a healthy respect for horses, call it even a fear. You see, when I was 14 years old, my friend had a, I guess you would call it a ranch. They would do like trail rides for kids and overnight camping all on horseback. So they had 20 or 30 horses there. And one day, I was 14 years old, we decided to take a few of the horses out into the woods, go for a, a walk, go explore. So we hopped onto these two horses and I'm on this horse bareback. And it's fine, right? We were young. I was, I was excited about it. We took off, and about 30 minutes into our journey, we're out into the woods at this point. There's a big canopy, and all of a sudden, the horse starts getting spooked. So the horse is stomping, it's neighing, it's breathing hard. And I'm getting a little panicky because this is a big beast underneath of me here. I look up, and I see what has caused all the alarm. Looking at me with dead eyes, is a wild 
feral escaped from the pen two years ago, devil cow. Just standing in the middle of the woods. So the horses see the cow. The cow starts charging towards us, running maybe, but I perceived it as charging. And so the horse freaks out and goes crazy and starts sprinting, I believe galloping is the equestrian term, galloping back to the barn. So this horse is flying and I'm holding on to it for dear life thinking this is, this is it, 14 years. This is how it ends. <laughs> horse. It was a horse that got him. Because I'm up high, it feels like I'm 3,000 feet off the ground going Mach 2. It's just terrifying. So the horse comes flying down this corner and we're heading towards a bridge. And I don't know if it miscalculated. I don't know if it got scared of the bridge. Didn't want to break a hoof or something. But it ended up not choosing to go across the bridge, but jumping instead out into the pond. So I'm 14 years old, bareback, flying through the airs into this pond. We hit the water. I fall down below. And all I can remember seeing as I'm underwater trying to stay down deep so I don't get clobbered is these massive horse hooves chopping through the water close to me. So I'm, sw I'm swimming, backpedal, kind of get out, drag myself to the shore, grab the horse by the reins. I'm banged up, soaking wet, thinking maybe I'll just walk the horse back to the, to the pen, right? That seems a little bit wiser. So we walk the horses back and we put them into the pen. There's probably 20 or 30 horses there at this point. They all kind of gathered. I think maybe they thought it was food time or something. So I open up the pen, put the horse in, close the pen, and all these horses are just sitting here looking at me. Right, and I'm petting one of them and you know, just trying to calm down myself. And all of a sudden, all these horses start going crazy. Then they start running. They start stampeding in, little, in this like big whirling dervish of a circle. And the ground is literally shaking from their hooves. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? I turn around and the devil cow <laughs> had followed us back. And I'm thinking, great, now I'm gonna die. Not from falling off a horse bareback, not from drowning and getting clobbered by hooves, but by this devil cow that's charging at me. It was gross looking, emaciated, covered in sores. And it had been lost in the woods for two years, and I think it thought I was mama or something. So it came charging towards me. And I'm thinking, what do I do? So I hopped into the horse's pen, into the middle of this stampede, sat there with my hands on my head thinking, don't hit me, don't hit me, don't hit me. And trying to think, I think I read somewhere that horses are, they have good depth perception or something. Now, why do I tell you all of this? Well, I don't want you to be like that wild, feral, devil cow out alone in the woods. And that is why you need church membership. <laughs> I got there. Organic, right? Just seamless transition. You see, that cow had escaped two years earlier. Now, I get it that analogies and illustrations break down if you press them too hard, because truthfully, if that cow wouldn't have escaped, I think it probably would have been butchered by this point. But let's just agree that the collective moral, let's just collectively agree that the moral of the story is sometimes we think we want to do it on our own, only to find out that the grass isn't greener 
And that true life isn't about doing your own thing, your own way, free of any constraints, but that God has built us and designed us to flourish, to thrive in community together. You see, for many people, accountability itself is, is kind of like a dirty word. We've been shaped by an individualistic culture that says you are the captain of your own destiny. You make the rules in your life. For all intents and purposes, you are Lord of your life. But God has made us unique in that you and I thrive not when we are free of all accountability, but when we are a part of something greater, something bigger than us. And that's why I want to talk about church membership. Now, I get it that it maybe doesn't sound that exciting, but it depends on what you think church membership is. Some people view church membership as Costco. I don't know, you just sign up so you can use the services, right? We don't give discounts on tires and insurances, but maybe there's something you think you're getting out of church, so you become a member. Or maybe you're here and you think the church membership is a bit like a gym, you like to be a member, not that you like go, but you show up once in a while, but it's good to have in your back pocket. But the Bible presents church membership very differently. So let's be precise and let me define it. Church membership is when a believer comes to a local body and covenants and commits for mutual growth and health. It is when a believer comes to a local body and says, I'm all in on you, you be all in on me. You know, you can think about it like dating. At some point, you gotta get married. Or if it's not the right person for you, okay. Once that's clear, but you have to make a commitment. You have to make a covenant. It's like the wise philosopher, I believe it's pronounced Bionke, said that if you like it, you have to put a ring on it. So, I tried all kinds of pronunciations to try to just slip it in there. But this whole idea of church shopping or church hopping, imagine if you saw a young guy out on a date from Bream, right? His name's Bobby. Bobby's sitting in a nice restaurant. He's looking good. He's sitting there at a table, and there's a lady across from him. And you come up. And you say, oh, Bobby, so good to see you. How's your family? Yada, yada, yada. Oh, who's this lovely lady? And he's like, ah, just, it's really no one. It's just Cindy, but I'm, I'm wife shopping right now. So I'm just trying it out and we'll see if she's wife material. There's something wrong about that. Now, I'm not going to jump on you if you use that term church shopping. I get the, the heart or the intent behind it but we should probably look at quickly retiring that from our language because this isn't a shopping experience. 
And that when you look for a church to put down roots into, you don't look for a church that is perfect because there is no perfect church. You don't stay at a church as long as everyone keeps you happy. You don't stay at a church until the pastor says something you don't like and then you take your ball and you go home. That there's more. There is covenant. There is commitment expected. So let's talk through kind of the the history of the early church because what I want to do today is I want to offer you five arguments from the Bible about the validity, the importance, or the the scriptural teaching that membership matters. Then I want to look at the foundation of where all of this comes from. But to start, I want to offer you the context. Because when we look at the biblical data, the information, it's important that we understand what was happening, broadly speaking. So you have Jesus come. The Son of God steps into human history, and he teaches, and he heals, and he casts out demons. He works miracles. He's incredible. God come in the flesh, and then he is crucified. He pays for our sins, and he is raised from the dead for our life three days later. He ministers and serves and sets up his apostles and his disciples, and then he ascends to heaven. He ascends to heaven, and he sends the Holy Spirit to come. And there, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. People are getting saved. And what happens is it's all largely confined at this point to Jerusalem, to Israel, in that region. But then the political leaders come, the leaders either in the synagogue or the government officials, and they begin to persecute Christians. And so what happens is that that persecution on Christians has the exact opposite effect of what was intended. So instead of stamping out and snuffing out the Christian movement, it sends a bunch of Christians out on the run to be dispersed as effectively missionaries. So all throughout the Roman world, churches are scattered. Now imagine you were living in this season, in this time period, and you get persecuted, you flee, you run, and you end up in Ephesus, Corinth, or even Rome. You end up in another city. You have nothing. You're on the run. So you show up, you hear about a group of Christians, you knock on the door to their little house church, or maybe they're meeting in some kind of larger multi-purpose room or building, and you go in and you find some brothers and sisters, some people who follow Jesus like you. And you fellowship with them and you pray with them and you you worship with them. And they say to you, brother, we will see you next week on the Lord's Day. And you say, well, we'll see. Because the coffee was, uh, it was lukewarm and it was weak. And uh, Jesus doesn't like lukewarm stuff. I know that much. So (laughs) neither do I. So I'm going to go try a different church. They didn't have that option. They didn't have the option of just going to a different church because they didn't like something. They were forced to have to work through issues and problems together. So then, let's be honest, the word membership is not in the Bible. Does that mean that it's not present in the Bible? Well, let me offer you five arguments for why membership is biblical. Okay, why membership 
is biblical. Here's the argument number one. The New Testament church, they had records, they had lists of some kind of people who were a part of the church as opposed to those who weren't. They had a, a list either written in their minds collectively of those who were a part of the church and those who weren't. In Acts 2.41, on that day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people get saved, it says that they gladly received the word and were baptized. In the same day, they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. They were counted, they mattered, they were included. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Timothy is a letter that Paul, as a mentor, writes to young Timothy, who's a pastor. And in chapter 5, he gives all of this instruction, like a significant chapter, on how Timothy is to structure the church to take care of widows. The implication in Paul's teaching was not that Timothy was tasked with caring for all the widows in Asia Minor. No, they had a church. They had a list of sorts. There were women who had been a part of that church or as couples they were, and then their husband had passed. And so Paul says, it's your responsibility, Timothy, to care for the widows of your church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul's talking about a problem in the church, about some behaviors that were contrary to the gospel that were being done by Christians or so-called Christians. And Paul says this, that stuff does not occur even among the pagans. So Paul says, you are a Christian. You are claiming to be a Christian. You're a part of this church, and yet you are living completely opposite. This is borne out in a number of different ways, but you can see that the New Testament church seems to have a record, a list, or the ability to identify who is a part of the church and who isn't. Here's argument number two. New Testament churches had the responsibility to address people who were living contrary to the gospel. New Testament churches had a responsibility to exercise what's called church discipline on their people who were living contrary to the gospel. Now, time out for a second. Church discipline does not sound very exciting. And maybe you're here and you've seen this before done in a really unhealthy way. I would be willing to bet that the vast majority of us have really never seen it done. So there's two errors that churches can fall into. One is using church discipline as a means of shaming and controlling people. That's wicked. Goes without, should go without saying, but that is wicked. The other error that churches often fall into is that they ignore it completely. Neither one honors God. Now, what this looks like in real life is unique. And someday I'll do a sermon on what this looks like in the life of a church. But I want to be a part of a church that has the courage to call me out on something if I'm running down the path of death. As opposed to a church that's just like, well, it's 2023. We don't want to be rude. We don't want to tell people what to do. Let's just let people do what they want. No, we are jealous for the name of Jesus because he is jealous for his own name. And we want to do it at all times with gentleness, with a heart that pulls towards restitution to see this person heal and grow. 
But there's nothing wrong. In fact, we should desire some accountability. Don't be a part of a church that will let you shipwreck your faith, destroy your family, bring shame to the name of Christ without saying, hey, we have to talk. You see, I am, my goal, and I'm soon to be the most accountable person here at Brian. That's my goal. So a few weeks back, I introduced to the elders um, uh, an accountability framework. It wasn't something that they had asked me to do. They weren't like, Devin, you gotta, you're a train wreck. Can you uh, figure something out? No, it's something that I initiated. And so in this accountability framework, it lays out, and you be made available to you at some point if you ever had any interest, but it lays out how the elders walk beside me and keep me in line. Right? And so in it, I say, hey, I will, um, all of my expenses every month that I charge, those are all signed off on the, by the elders. I do other staff and then other staff do some other staff, but the elders check that every month. They check my giving each year. How disingenuous would it be? How hard-hearted would it be for me to be like, hey, church, we got this great opportunity. Make sure you give, right? Trust the Lord. He's gonna do great things here. Meanwhile, my wife and I don't give. Right? Wouldn't that be disingenuous? Wouldn't that be wicked? So I'm like, hey, elders, check my giving. I even offered them, if they would be interested, to do a credit report each year, right? Because I actually have credit now in America. It took me six months to get it. So I'm very proud of that, <laughs> right? But just to make sure that I'm not you know, blowing money and, or wasting resources, making unwise financial decisions, or they'd be like, I don't know. I know he doesn't ride horses anymore. Maybe he's betting on them, right? Like, just... <laughs> Open it. Another one is there's an elder and wife who are partnered with my wife to make sure that I'm not here being like, oh, yes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and shaking hands and kissing babies and then at home, I'm a beast, right? Um, Annual performance reviews involving staff at multiple levels in that, having a reporting structure. Because here's the reality. Here's something that... Here's a deep insight about my personality that God gave me early in my life. I can be stupid. You know, truthfully, I'm not above anything. I I really know that. And I want to make it. Not make it big, but make it to the end. I want to persevere for God's glory. I call that a Hall of Fame career in ministry. We have a few of them on staff. Pastors that have made it to the end and they still love Jesus, they still love their wives, and they still love the church. That is a Hall of Fame career. And I know that if I am left completely on my own, like a wild, feral devil cow out in the woods, then my odds of success in making it will drastically be reduced. So part of this opening yourself and covenanting and committing with the church is saying, man, if I go off the deep end, come find me. Do you care enough? Do you love me enough to follow after me if I'm going astray? Because you're not sitting here right now, more than likely thinking, you know what? In four years, I'm gonna make a wreck of my marriage. In four years, I'm gonna lose my job because of X, Y, and Z. 
In four years, I'm gonna walk away from my faith in college. We don't set out to do that. It happens by slow, progressive steps down the path of death. What you and I need are brothers and sisters who know us and who love us and have the courage to call us out when we need it in a God-glorifying and gracious way. That's argument number two. Argument number three. Church shepherds, pastors, were responsible for specific sheep, right? So elders were responsible, are tasked with caring for specific sheep, not just every Christian. I am not every Christian's pastor. God has called me to this context. That's one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of personally criticizing other pastors or churches. I'm like, man, I don't know how people have time to do that. There's enough problems right here, right? There's enough areas to work on right here. I don't wanna get on there and spend all of my time attacking and attacking and attacking. Sure, if there's a, a false teaching that's really threatening Brian, we'll jump into it and talk about it. But I'm tasked with caring and just in, in, in carrying out my charge here at Brian. In First, Tim, uh, First Peter chapter five, we read these words. This is 1 Peter 5, 1. Peter says this, I exhort, I encourage, he says, the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he saw Jesus' suffering, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd your people. Shepherd your people, he says. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Paul says, or Peter says here to the elders, shepherd your people, which means that Pastors and elders need to be aware of who their people are. You know, I've had instances before where I've met with someone during a crisis, and I have to ask them, like, I know you've come here before. Do you actually go here? Or are you going to that church? Or do they have a process for you? And it's very hard to walk with people over the long haul when they're jumping from situation to situation to situation. So New, New Testament church leaders, shepherds, were responsible for specific sheep. That's when, why, when I disciple people. I generally disciple people from my church versus you know, someone else. I'm not gonna focus my ministry. It's on my unsaved neighbors and friends and then on the people that God has called me to serve. New Testament shepherds were responsible for specific sheep, which indicates that they had a set membership. Argument number four, this is key. The many one another commands of scripture only make sense in light of church membership, okay? So the Bible has lots of what we call one another commands. Love one another, serve one another, encourage, rebuke one another, submit to one another, pray for one another, 
all that kind of stuff. But if you have one toe in a church and one toe out, you're never going to really grow in any of those. Because it's easy to love somebody when you don't know them. Right? You go out in the, go out in the comments after. All you got to do is turn the sides of your mouth. I think it's called the smile. Raise your eyebrows a little bit. Right? Stoop down to their height and kind of like, you know, good handshake and hey, brother. Do you think that's really, truly what God had in mind when he calls us to love one another deeply? Just shake a few hands. Or is he talking about the kind of love that comes from fully knowing someone and then growing in your love? Because if you're a part of a church, if you become a member, here's what you see. No church is perfect. And churches are filled with imperfect people. So at some point, you're either gonna have to jump ship or you're gonna have to learn how to grow in love for people who are different than you. If you jump ship every two years because of some secondary issue from churches, you're never going to grow. You're never going to be strengthened in these one another commands that are so central to the New Testament world, to the Christian ethic. God calls us to love, care, serve for one another. How are you possibly going to do that if you don't pursue membership? It's going to be here and there and Oh, then they offended you, so now you're over here. It's gonna be the same year over and over and over for the rest of your Christian life until you put down roots and you learn to grow through these difficult situations. I don't want to be rebuked by somebody who doesn't know me. You ever have that? Somebody, some stranger offer you some like, whew, okay, well, you don't know me. Uh, you don't know the situation. Proverbs 27.1 says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but the enemies, well, they all multiply kisses. You surround yourself in a church with fellow members who love Jesus and love you, who are committed to Jesus and committed to you. You can trust people like that to speak into your life. Here's argument number five. New Testament church members were called to follow specific leaders. Okay, now this can get a little uncomfortable for us. I recognize that, especially in today's kind of climate in our world. But Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Okay, let's wrap it up right there. I'll say amen to that. You hear that, church? Oh, wait, it keeps going. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Good, good. We're watching over your souls, so make sure you obey your leaders and submit to them. But then it goes on and says this. Because they will give an account. That reframes the whole thing, doesn't it? I will, we will, as pastors, as elders, give an account for how we care for God's people. Good, godly leadership is a gift from God. 
Unfortunately, we're often familiar with the opposite. And when we see leadership in the church specifically that is contrary to the gospel, we recognize it as a damaging perversion of how God has designed things to be. But simply because it has been abused in the past, here, there, anywhere in Christian circles, you cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater. Some people struggle with wine. It doesn't mean you burn it all or pour it out. Some people struggle with eating too many hamburgers. It doesn't mean that we should begin to pick it to have hamburgers outlawed forever. There's no end to what we can struggle with, what Satan, what the flesh can pervert. And leadership has been abused in in the past, for sure, by Christians. But it still remains a gift from God when done properly. For example, I submit to the elder board fully. I know them. Growing in my knowledge of them, I get lots of face time with them. I love them. I respect them. And I enjoy them. I don't walk into an elders meeting thinking that, okay, I've got all the ideas. I know how all this needs to go. I understand the best course of action. Just trust me and nod your head. Go like this. Go like this. Say yes. No, I, I have had good ideas before. I, I have. I've also had some bad ones. There's nothing wrong with good and godly leadership. We should long for that. We should cultivate that. We should develop that, and we should celebrate it. But church members are called to submit to and follow specific leaders. If you meet a dude out there in the parking lot and he's got a little fancy collar on, right? And he's like, hey, I'm a pastor and I would like you to obey me by uh, changing my tire because I, look at this, I can't. No, of course, do your good Samaritan deed. Maybe he needs it. But the point is that It's not like pastors have authority over you or elders do. In a local church, God calls them to exercise leadership. But it's not like I can go and boss people around at a different church, right? No, it's a matter of submission. But even that can rub us the wrong way, can't it? Because maybe you're here and you're bristling a bit. I feel uncomfortable even saying it. But here's the foundation of all of this. Submitting to a church through membership only makes sense in light of submission to Christ as king. You see, church membership is not about you becoming a Bereanite. Church membership is not about you being like, hey, I I really like Devin and I want to get behind this new season of ministry or or whatever. It's not about your card-carrying members and privileges and the 80% discount we give you at the cafe right? That's just a joke. Don't try to claim that. Submission to a church through membership is about submission to Jesus as Lord. Because here's a newsflash for you. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You do not have autonomy over your own life if you are a follower of Jesus. He is Lord, he is King, he is Master, he's the Alpha, he's the Omega, he is the end and the beginning. It's all about him. 
This is the fundamental declaration of what it means to be a Christian, that Jesus is Lord. Not you, not me, not anyone in Washington, not anyone anywhere. Jesus Christ is king. And so we bow our knee to him and we say, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to I want to grow in you. And so I am covenanting. I am committing with this local body of crucified per, blood purchased followers of Jesus. I'm going to get with your people. I'm going to put down some roots so that I can thrive and so that I can grow. But that only makes sense if you understand that Jesus is Lord. You may not like the idea of having to commit. You may not like the idea of giving of telling people about Jesus, about reading your Bible. It doesn't really matter because this wasn't a popularity contest or a democracy. Jesus Christ is king. He is Lord. He is master. So when we bow our knee to him, we find that joy and hope and peace are accessible. And we say, I want you, Jesus. So I want to be with your people. I want a covenant and I want to commit. Let me ask you this. What are you looking for in a church? Because maybe you're here and Brian isn't your home, you're visiting. What are you looking for in a church? My hope is that your list of expectations for a church have some depth to them. Instead of just simple, superficial, and secondary issues. There's something wrong if you're happy to go to a church that doesn't preach the gospel because you like the music. There's something wrong if you go to a church and you're like, well, you know, they've got, they got all the tradition stuff that I really like, but, you know, they don't preach the gospel. No, find yourself a church that obeys Jesus as Lord, submits to his word, and jump in with both feet. There are some good churches around here. But look for those distinguishing marks, a church that will submit to Jesus as Lord and his word as our guide, and then jump in. Put down some roots. Open yourself to community. And watch God move. The gates of hell, we're told, will not stand against the church. But you don't storm the gates of hell with a bunch of half-committed consumers. I trust fully that God will continue to do incredible things here at Berean. And my prayer is that we continue to invite people to submit to Jesus as Lord, to jump in with both feet so that we can grow together. The reality is, church, there are wolves out there. There is a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Don't be a mad, feral, emaciated cow out in the woods alone. You won't make it. Find a church and jump in. Find a church and become a member. If you're interested in pursuing membership here at Brian, you can sign up for our next class on June 4th, either at the uh, Connections Wall, Connect Wall, or through the Church Center app. But the truth is we can't do this alone. Whether it's here or it's elsewhere, find a church, jump in with both feet, become a member so that you can thrive.
Let me pray to that end. Father, we love you and we praise you. We're all tempted at times to make church about us. To look at our preferences and our wants. And, but this is all about you, Jesus. We're here singing songs to you, reading from your word, praying to you, celebrating in the joy of the Lord. It's all you, Jesus. And so break us, break me of that, of that tilt, of that bend towards self. May we as a church be fully devoted followers of you, Jesus. Would you help us to commit to covenant, not only to you, but to one another, that we're here, that we're in it for the long haul, that we will persevere and be patient with people. Do that work in us and in our hearts, I pray. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.